You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Octavio Fernandez y Mostajo. And my name is Claire Perini. And welcome to an amazing episode of the Regent College Podcast. It is an amazing episode of the Regent College Podcast. I think Octavio, there was a bit of excitement in Octavio that I've... I mean, he's always an excitable man, but there was a, there was a, there was like a deep excitement and like joy in today's podcast with Dr. Esther L. Meek, who's an associate professor of philosophy at Geneva College, and she um, she's a philosopher and she mm-hmm. talks a lot about this concept of epistemology, and epistemology is essentially. Um, how we know what we know, mm-hmm. uh, how we know, basically, how do we know anything? How do we know? That's that's the kind of the concept of epistemology. And so Esther's written uh, a, a couple of books. She's written one called Longing to Know, uh, and then she's written another one called Loving to Know. And she's also teaching a class uh, this summer at Regent College, which is sort of coming out of her book Loving to Know, introducing covenant epistemology. Mm-hmm. So um, we had a, a wonderful conversation with Dr. Meek and. You will enjoy. Uh, like I'm not a philosopher, and uh, it got me thinking. In like, sent my brain kind of in different directions. But mm-hmm. um, it, it was it was a great conversation. I mean, you've never seen, heard, a happier, most excited philosopher than Esther Meek. Like Claire said, for me, philosophy and especially philosophers are so off-putting. They they make things so complicated, like. Impossible to not understand. They can not all, not all. N- not Some all. Like the ones I know, maybe I know the bad ones, the ones that suck. But they make it so complicated and so like people like me, you know, that love ex- that artists and excite in excitement. They made it so boring, so unengaging. But Esther Meek is totally the opposite, and and she, uh, you you've, you've, you're gonna hear it. We were like oh, me and Claire almost fighting over in order to get a chance to ask her questions and try to understand what the, the, all the, the, the pearls she was dropping here on a podcast. Mm-hmm. We're talking right. about th- this, this idea of how do you know what you know? It's been helping me so much because it makes me realize that I know so much more than I can actually put into words or articulate mm-hmm. in a statement. And, and it just, just learning how we learn. She talked about focal and subsidiary uh, I'm going to leave those those two words if it uh, sounds weird by the end of the podcast you'll be like I'm going to tattoo those words in my arms because it's so important to learning but I'm just going to stop talking and, and just introduce you to the podcast enjoy our conversation with Dr. Esther Meek Dr. Meek, welcome to the Regent College podcast. Thank you. It's great it's to so see you. Good to have we're, you. Yeah, we're so glad to have you. Um, okay, we're gonna we're gonna. I wanted to give us get you to give us a bit of a sense of who you are and sort of tell us why did you become a philosopher who focused on epistemology? What was it about that? That what did you, why were you drawn to that? Was it because of the money? Are philosophers <laughs> making the big bucks? So much is that, money. Is that why? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I am, I would say, a, a kind of an odd philosopher. Uh, I'm not exactly a guild philosopher. I'd like to think of myself as a philosopher in the streets. Oh. And uh, 
I, I'm uh, happy being a creative subversive. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I, ju- I feel passionate about uh, philosophy and philosophizing being the birthright of every human being. And uh, mm. I, that, but that takes some, um, so that's takes quite a sell job because our modern age has, has uh, banished or disavowed philosophy. So uh, you first have to talk a long time to help somebody realize they're entitled right. and, and that they're philosophical and, yeah. and then they've got something that can be addressed. So, you know, what, how I got into it is that, uh, uh, well, I, I grew up in a Bible believing Christian home and um, uh, along about age 13 had some, uh, questions that I thought were sin <laughs> mm, <laughs> and, right. and were weird. And uh, I felt, uh, you know, rather embarrassed of them. So I didn't really say anything to anybody. But one of them was, how do I know that God exists? Mm. And the other is, how do I know there, that anything exists outside my mind, mm-hmm. including you? And it just seemed to me that I had no proof. And uh, that seemed to be a pretty foundational thing you needed proof for. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, uh, you know, like I said, I, I, at that point thought there was something wrong with me and, and, uh, something wrong with my comportment before God. I didn't mm-hmm. think Jesus would like me. Right. <laughs> Having a question. Right. 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 Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, as the story developed, I first found, and I can tell you more if you want, but, mm. but, uh, I first found, that those questions were philosophical and that responses had shaped whole cultural epochs across mm. the disciplines mm. and learned that from Francis Schaeffer. Mm. And then uh, mm. I, when I, the, when I found out that you could actually study philosophy, it took me 12 hours to change my career mm-hmm. path. Mm. And it wasn't because I thought I was smart enough or cool enough. It was that I felt morally obligated because these were the most important questions. Mm. And, and honestly, I made that about face in half a day. Yeah, and wow. <laughs> haven't looked back since. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's been, I, I think of it as I tell the story, I think of it as my quest for reality. Mm. First, it was a quest for knowing, because how do you know are epistemological questions, but it was reality that I wanted to know. That's what I longed to know. Mm. So, uh, obviously, that's right. why one of my book titles is called Longing to Know, and the other yeah. one's called Loving to Know. Yeah. <laughs> another one's called Contact with Reality, you know, because that's what I was seeking. And uh, really, a key breakthrough for me came, uh, I would say I was about... 23, when um, somebody handed me a book by Michael Polanyi, Mm. and it's his proposals about uh, how knowing works in the in the um, process of scientific discovery that I found uh, eye opening, uh, you know, uh, and and also um, very confident with regard to accessing reality, which was the mm, thing that I that you were that looking for. Yeah, yeah. So his, the phrase contact with reality is his, you know, he would say things like, mm-hmm. you know, you've made contact with reality, mm-hmm. because you have this sense of the possibility of indeterminate future manifestations. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was the water of life to me, because it's the only person, the only voice that I heard responding to my question 
about mm-hmm. how do I make contact with reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was that was uh, in my 20s. I ended up doing a dissertation on that contact with reality and Michael Polanyi. Mm-hmm. It took some decades uh, mm. to grow into that. Mm. Uh, I, I would say I was still a, a, a Cartesian skeptic by the time I got that dissertation done. And, <laughs> Uh, having been born <laughs> a Cartesian skeptic, yeah. <laughs> and apparently, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and but I grew into it. You know, obviously, mothering <laughs> might have something to right. You know, yeah, your nose in reality, but well, yeah, there's a lot of reality going on there. <laughs> the incubation of of decades really melded my thought, and then uh, I because I had you know checked out of society as a mm-hmm. mom. Uh, uh, to come back into it um, in in the context of a seminary and realize that people far younger than I had the same questions, mm-hmm. and that that mm-hmm. was when I began to dawn on it began to dawn on me that it wasn't me, you know. It, it's yeah. the modern yeah. age, and right. quite honestly, uh, the modern age is so strident that I will never run out of a job. I might never be paid, but I. <laughs> I can't say this enough because this epistemological therapy has to be just administered continually. Yeah. So when it comes to Regent, that's what I'm doing. And I know <laughs> there'll be a need because I know the modern age yeah. and that the presumptions, the mindset of the modern age with regard to knowing just it dehumanizes, it depersonalizes, it distrusts and disavows reality. You know, it's a mess. It's just a mess. And it and it adversely marks every area of our life. So, yeah, mm. yeah, I love I love that you mentioned the, the phrase epistemological therapy, because I know I, I want people to know this, but you've been therapy for me. Like yeah. listening to you. Oh, oh, you have no idea. No, I like nobody's ever gotten me passionate about epistemology ever like the word itself sounds so like oh i don't i don't even want to know about it but ever since i started listening to your lectures they've been therapeutic oh hands down hands down because like and and when you yes when you mentioned polani and and i have a phrase that you mentioned in one of the videos you said no knowledge can be in his idea no knowledge can be wholly explicit and articulated in statement form that was like yes yeah i mean like the the fact that you put it in a phrase it was it resonated so much with my soul because i'm an i'm an artist Be, oh so, yay it, yeah, i'm writing it, on art right now <laughs> oh beautiful and because you mentioned that you know so much more than what you actually can put on statement right. form, and i was like yeah. and that's a conflict for so many people especially yes. writing like studying theology they have so many thoughts but when it comes to to when it comes time to write them on a paper you just you just can't, and you're frustrated with what you've written because it's mm-hmm. not what you actually know. But like, so let, let, let's talk about that. The I'm gonna read it again. No knowledge can be wholly explicit and articulated in statement form. How? Why is that? Can oh, you give actually, us or- Octavio, I'm gonna scandalize you. Please I do. think I've got an update on that statement. Right. <laughs> uh, I don't think there's any knowledge that can be articulated in in statement form. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and here's what I mean. If I happen mm-hmm. to be uttering sentences that you understand, it's because you're subsidiarily indwelling them. Try that again. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
if if my sentence if the stuff coming out my mouth is making sense to you even halfway yeah it's because you are not fixated focally on explicit statements but you're bodily indwelling mm-hmm. them to make sense of whatever's going on in my head mm-hmm, i see so yeah. if a sentence is meaningful yeah. it's because it's it's in you mm. <laughs> yeah just like you know oh, if you were yes. riding a bike a statement is just like a bike you know it, it you, it's something you bodily indwell to open the world to you Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it really, uh, mm-hmm. you know, one thing you have to avoid with Polony, and and it's an important thing to point out, just because our you know the modernist mindset that we inherit just says that knowledge is explicit, focal statements and information, yeah. right, right, right. But uh, we can uh, start hearing, you know. That no knowledge is wholly explicit, and and we think, okay, so there's the explicit part, and then there's the the remainder. <laughs> and Polanyi wasn't saying that. <laughs> okay, okay. He d- he says something about knowledge being rooted in and outrun by the inarticulate. But the fact is, uh-huh. meaning. If you look at the meaning of sentences, sentences only mean if you're inside them. So if you're reading mm. a book. You're subsidiarily attending to the marks on the page. But if you stop and revert to fixate on the words or the letters on the page, you lose the picture. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then, so epistemology is this, is is a word that means to know, right? And so that's, so just, yeah, so that, that kind of, how do we know anything? How do we know right. what we know? When I was a student at Regent, I had two words stuck on my desk because I always got them confused, ontology and epistemology. I think I've now got them <laughs> sorted out in my brain. But Thank that, you. yeah, <laughs> but too. so Me epistemology too, like, on- is sort of how we know what we know, right? Um, so tell us, and how do you, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, my Polanian approach is hardly known. Mm. So don't take this to be standard epistemology, okay. because mm-hmm. Polanyi uh, wrote and spoke at a time in the heyday of of modernist epistemology, and they thought he was crazy. Mm. So so uh, there seem to be lots of people that know Polanyi, but nobody is like being intentional in in philosophical epistemological mm-hmm. discussions about his contribution. And uh, you ought to be able to uh, think about this. Polanyi's epistemology actually is the thing that allowed me to leave the ivory tower, which mm-hmm. I had to do because I was a mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because and it allowed it 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 mm-hmm. uh, fueled my passion for uh, philosophy to be that which is the birthright of every human being, mm-hmm. right? Because because the way a lot of epistemology and formal philosophical cir- circles happen, you'd have a hard time connecting it to your kitchen. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So then how do you, you say that then that knowing is not linear. So knowledge is an event. Is that, is that like what, talk to us. How, how do you know, how would you say, if I had to say to you, okay, how do I know anything? Yeah. What would you yeah. say? Well, here, uh, what I'll say is here's how knowing works. And uh, I'll, I'd like you to um, pick a skill that you have. A good one would be bike riding. Mm-hmm. Another would be driving a car. Another would be handwriting with a pen or reading. 
mm-hmm. uh, musical instruments, footballs, whichever, however you define them, <laughs> you know, yeah. Right. Yeah, uh, you know, anything that involves an implement like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then uh, you want to, to think back to when you started at it. <laughs> mm. So yeah. uh, I tell the story, one of my books, my father uh, wanted to teach me to ride a bike. And uh, we didn't have that much money. He borrowed a bike. It was too big for me. He didn't believe in training wheels. He had just supreme <laughs> confidence. When, and I was a baby skeptic, right? So it seemed pretty <laughs> evident to me that no human being alive could balance on two points. Mm-hmm. Right? And that seemed to be what this impossible contraption of a yeah. bicycle was asking me to do. And <laughs> so he took me to the the back, the top of the backyard, top of a grassy hill, put me on the bike, too big for me, and pushed me and yelled, balance! And maybe <laughs> skeptic. So I'm saying, what does it mean to balance? <laughs> right. When we say balance, what do we mean by balance? Does that mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you, meanwhile, you're like hurtling down a exactly. grassy hill on a bike, balancing, right? I kind don't of. remember the bottom of the hill, <laughs> but I can ride a bike. Yeah, right, right. Before, when I taught my kids to ride, I said the same thing. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, it worked. <laughs> okay, so that some way, really so that's point A, and you see at point A, you're fixated on your body, which is totally opaque. It's not working out for you. You know, you you look at this bike. It's a meaningless contraption. And even the words of the authoritative guide are senseless to you. Right. That's mm. focal knowledge, by the way. <laughs> mm. If you focus yeah. on it, it's meaningless that, and it's disconnected. So if the ideal in the modern age is to is focal knowledge, no wonder we've got the problems we do. And it's amazing that we've made the advances we have. We've made the advances we have because we've been tapping into the way we actually know, but it's not the way that we describe it. Yeah. So now can you remember or just think about the performance of bike riding? Okay. The lovely performance of right bike riding at at some point those come together and you're able to pull it off right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and at that point uh you are keeping your balance and i would say keeping one's balance on a bike is a supreme example of subsidiary knowledge Mm -hmm. okay there's no way you can articulate it even though there's a physics formula for keeping your balance on a bike it's not, it's, it's not that you memorized the formula, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Uh, but you've got this palpable sense of your balance. It's absolutely essential to the bike riding. It's actually, you can get it wrong and you can improve it. So it's not mystical or magical either. I mean, it's uh, trainable. <laughs> yeah. And it grows presumably too, right? So then it, it grows, as you say, like it's kind of like, it, it doesn't stay the same. You can perfect it. You can get better at it. You can practice it, those kinds of you things. You can change you bikes and, you know, yeah. ride half a bike, ride, you know, all these other other things that you can do. You can go to a unicycle, you know, mm-hmm. and, yeah. <laughs> all those things. So, so, um, at, so in a performance, what you see is you've brought things together into an integrated pattern subsidiarily that opens the world to you. And so yeah. the world comes to you in so many possible bike paths. 
mm. you know, places you can go. Oh, the mm. places you can go. Yeah, that's right. Dr. Zeus style, the modern, the, you know, the, the, the original philosopher, you know, of uh, <laughs> hitting reality. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Mick, I... I do have a question about subsidiaries. I started, you know, playing sports. Then I stopped, and then I started playing sports again, like basketball. And all of a sudden, I got I got stuck in the subsidiaries of of a jump, of landing a jump. All of a sudden, I couldn't get out of my head of what do I physically do when I land a jump, and and like what what are my knees supposed to do, my butt, my body? How do I land? And once I I couldn't rest on the subsidiaries, I was hurting myself. I was hurting my knees. I was hurting my 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 legs. I was because I like I couldn't do it fluidly because it, it became focal. Like like you did. I, I was so worried about the the mechanics. So I had to stop because I was hurting my before. I mean like when you jump, you don't you don't actually think on about the mechanics of landing. You just land a jump because you already know how to. Yeah. And you also you also give an example of, of a tennis player that used to be was it a baseball player. Baseball so player, Steve Blast, baseball player, exactly. That couldn't pitch anymore, right? Because he was stuck on in, in the mechanics of pitching. It wasn't fluid anymore. And my question was, how do you get out of there? Like, yeah. How do you yeah. get unstuck? Oh, in, that's in, a fantastic. In, in, so, so and obviously, Steve Blast would would have given anything to know that. Mm. Yeah. I had a I had a student who uh, gave a presentation on Polani, and his example was that he was a diver. And he could do one of those pretzel things. <laughs> I don't know what they're called. Two and a half, what <laughs> you know. Uh, but but uh, until one day, his his coach said to him, "Pull your elbow around a little faster," and he could no longer do the dive. Oh, yeah. right. So totally to the that one point oh, that no. comes out of your example is there's a risk in knowing there's mm. this intrinsic risk. And uh, uh, Polani, there, there's a risk that you can't get beyond the focal mm -hmm. or that if you revert mm -hmm. to the focal, you'll forever lose the pattern. So yes. my young friend, yes. George, who at, at the time that I knew him, he had grown up playing golf with Tiger Woods. He was from over there. Mm -hmm. And uh, then he took lessons and it ruined him. So he became a model. He was a very <laughs> good model. But he wasn't a golfer, uh -huh. right? So, so, um, so Polani would say that it in your uh, skilled performance, it, it's needful and it's good to revert temporarily to focus on what uh, you know would be subsidiaries if you weren't mm -hmm. relying on them, mm -hmm. right? But there is that risk, and uh, and uh, it. You know, to connect this to the kind of the mindset of the modern age, it's that reversion to focus on what ought to be subsidiary that's mm -hmm. been installed mm -hmm. as the paradigm of knowledge that actually has given us fits. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So really what you want to actually do in your, especially in your learning, and of course your, your case is a little different in that you stepped away from it and then you came back. Yeah. Right. So, but in your learning, you, you, you have to go golf course, driving range, golf course, driving range, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and in your piano playing, you've got to, you know, go to lessons, mm -hmm. you got to do scales. Da, 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 da. So yeah. all of those uh, can involve a toggling back and forth between the subsidiaries and, and the focal, a temporary mm -hmm. reversion to fixate on the, 
subsidiaries. Actually, I think if somebody has to learn Hebrew or Greek or any language, right, you, you start by focusing on, you know, the text. And that's actually what keeps the text from meaning anything from, for you. Mm. That, that's where you have to start. Yes. Right? Yeah. So yeah. in your process, it's actually good to have these check-in moments when you come back to uh, putting, making the subsidiaries subsidiaries to open the pattern toward the future mm-hmm. or to, to reality. Mm-hmm. Is that, mm-hmm. Claire, does that make sense to you? It does. It's, yes, sort of. Do you know what? Philosophy is one of those things that makes my brain go a bit crazy. Like, so if I've got the kind of concentrating listening face because I'm like, I'm trying to like track everything. Yes. No, it does make sense. No, it does. The, the same thing happens with language. I've seen my language and language of so many people getting worse because they're stuck on the focal, on the sentence structures, on, on, on the rules. And all of a sudden, you, you used to have this intuitive way of speaking English. And all of a sudden, even by fear or because you're fearful that somebody's going to make fun of your English or whatever, you, you, you're thinking about rules and how and sentence structures. And all of a sudden, your English it goes down the hill, and that's been happening to me. And and now it, now I understand why. So those these two levels of, of knowing, so subsidiary and focal, and and you're sort of you're saying that they need to be integrated, and that's that's key for us in terms of our learning, and that knowledge is rooted in what you trust. Do you want to just talk talk to us a little bit more about about that, or is Polani's kind of idea as well? I think, but yeah, what that kind of knowledge being rooted in what we trust. And I, I appreciate the way you said it. I would just w- want to nuance it to sure. make sure that everybody's clear that uh, uh, the, the, two, the two levels are levels and you go from two Got and it. they're connected by integration and your yes. job is not to outrun the subsidiaries. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> if you did, you'd fall off the bike. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what you actually want to do uh, is train your subsidiaries as subsidiaries. So I call that virtuosity, mm. you know, mm. so uh, an artful intentionality about the subsidiaries, you know, which somebody who is proficient at their skill would do. You don't fixate on them, but somehow you can go to the bank on them in a subsidiary way. Now, to the point that you raise, trust is a good word to describe your relatedness to the bike. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what subsidiaries are, are the clues that you rely on. Well, rely on is another word f- for trust, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that really helped me about finding Polani's work was he really went really concrete on stuff that I thought of as faith and trust. That really mm. helped me a lot, mm. you know. So it allowed me to say, okay, so we trust God. Well, we trust bikes too. Now, that's not at all to belittle, uh, you know, the incredible risk that trusting God is. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, your yeah. entire life and eternity are at stake. You know, <laughs> it's not so, so much with a bike. But it, it's uh, there's a kinship there that helped me justify my Christianity to myself. Mm-hmm. So, yes, mm-hmm. I would say all knowing is rooted in trust mm. and and risk and responsibility. And all three of those words are just nowhere in the modernist understanding of knowledge. Mm. And you can right. throw in persons and you can under, throw in personal bodies, human bodies. Right. 
Right. So, so you think, you know, think of, feel your body as you're sitting there right now. You typically don't feel it or you feel it as your own. That's because it's all entirely subsidiary unless you go to the doctor. And that's weird because he makes it Exactly. Yeah, that is so yeah. true. That is so yeah. true. And I yeah, hope yeah. that yeah. I haunt yeah. everybody well enough that you know you, the rest. You know, all the rest yeah. of your life, you'll see this is everywhere. You never look at. I'm never going to look at anything the same again, Esther. I'm already feeling like that. <laughs> well, and see how this is how Polani really helps torpedo the modernist mindset, which the modernist mindset requires the presumption that knowledge is focal information and in statements. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then your mm-hmm. job in in knowledge is to collect all the information. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Sorry for interrupting your podcast, but Claire Perini has something really, really important that she wants to share with you. For the last number of weeks and months... You will have had a little interruption from Octavio and I with me trying to say rgnt.net forward slash give. And the reason for that is um, that we love hearing from people who are enjoying and appreciating the podcast. We love hearing that. And we love hearing that you enjoy it so much that you want to give Regent a little bit of a donation to say thanks. And so this is an invitation to continue doing that or to do that for the first time. Uh, to allow us to continue to keep having these really good conversations with people all over the world about all sorts of things, about the good, beautiful kingdom of God and how it plays itself out in the life of everyday Christians. So if you would like to give a donation to Regent College to say thanks for the podcast, Octavia and I would be delighted. You can do that at rgnt.net forward slash give. And please, if you'd leave a donation, uh, write in the comment box over there that the podcast sent you. Enjoy Enjoy the the rest rest of of our conversation. conversation. Yeah. So I I do have a comment here that that I might be wrong, but if I connect, it might be really useful for... Or listeners, and for me, maybe like after you, you're you're in, in seminary, or you in a in a in a uh, Bible college, like like Regent College, like a Bible school, and and they, they teach you to read the Bible in the in the way you know the Greek and the Hebrew and the structures and the and the chiasms and whatever. The Bible becomes focal, and instead of before it was sort of subsidiary, and and I I know so many people that after their their they're learning like the, the new skill. They cannot read the Bible anymore. Yeah, because yeah. it's become. And, and can you say focal. now, Octavio, what's going on there? I'm connecting points right now. Like, like, like the dots so, is like it's the Steve Blass syndrome. <laughs> yeah, mm. yeah, and and that's why if a theological institution has not done epistemological therapy, it's that much more of a crying shame. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. of all. People, <laughs> right? Uh, we yeah. ought to get we ought to get this, but it's it's that it's that our modernist epistemology has been left unexamined, right? And so, how do you develop mm-hmm. a curriculum? And it's a bit of a trick in academic institutions, also because academic yes. institutions are so marked by the modernist mindset. Mm-hmm. Even if we mm-hmm. love Jesus, 
Uh, it doesn't necessarily, it's no guarantee that it fixes the epistemology that's endemic in the structures of academics, especially when you get to the graduate uh, level. Yes, right. agree. <clears throat> well, and because there's certain, yeah, even if, even if your institution is trying to do something different, the system itself is set up with a, with a certain structure and a certain way that this is how you prove what you know or, right, or this right. is how, you, right. or well, this this is how you, you show what, what you know. know. If yeah. I could say a couple comforting things. Yeah, please <laughs> do, please <laughs> do. Um, what you want to do is see that to learn anything and to cultivate scholarship in any area, it's going to take some fixating that's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And it ought mm-hmm. to be uncomfortable because there is a little unnaturalness about it. And mm. that's why school is over at commencement. <laughs> mm. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Because it's not meant to be life. Yes. Mm. Right. And then when it comes to the Bible, you know, kind of kind the 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 uh the fixating on chiasms, let's say. Mm that open mm. worlds yeah, <laughs> with regard yes. to the Bible is just for the purpose of you identifying so that then you can subsidiarily indwell it. So it opens yeah. up vistas of reality. Mm-hmm. So the key is you want to be intentional about your scholarship. That's actually kind of developing this artful virtuosity, but you don't want to take that as your end goal. Or your focal point. You want to see that that's temporary and meant for you to crawl back into and subsidiarily indwell. Mm. And that's how you get through. That's how Mm. you get through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, like I I taught for a while at Covenant Seminary and, you know, I teach at Geneva. There's a, you know, there's a, a weekly worship. Well, epistemologically, that ought to be the heart Mm-hmm. Of, of what we do. But I have to say, just because you have chapel <laughs> mm-hmm. doesn't mean that people have the epistemology to oh, figure yes. out how to make that work mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in a way that that, you know, would connect you with God. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why I think it's, it's especially unfortunate that the defective uh, mindset uh, with regard to knowledge infects seminaries. So people who come, come because they're loving Jesus and then end up with, with a a training in the modernist mindset that, you know, was so not what they were looking for. And Mm. now they don't even know what to do with their congregation or Mm. even their own spirituality. Mm. So Mm. like bottom line, every graduate has to go through an epistemological therapy, like like we we have every to, human it, being. <laughs> when, uh, yeah, every <laughs> that is true. Another cool thing is, once you start to have the epistemological therapy, the 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 ordinary bodied skills of life really uh, help you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Uh, but you ha- you have to kind of get on board with the fact that they're meant to be this this uh, honoring of subsidiaries. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay. So, okay. so I think, for example, 
when I say football, I mean that that ball like this. <laughs> the, oval, oval, the oval shaped ball, not the round shaped right, ball. With the yeah. points on the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, go Steelers. I got my Steelers shirt on. Um, uh, I, there are athletes who think that their job means punishing their bodies. Mm-hmm. Like It's like mind over matter. Mind, I don't know. Yep. It's like yeah, you, just, you just, you know, you want to somehow man it over your body mm. <laughs> well uh that's sad it it ends up with more injuries yes uh and it it keeps you from being truly artistic mm. at totally. football. Mm. and so you would be more of an artist in your sport if you saw yourself as working with your body in a, in a way that's got some mutuality and you've got a reverence for your body. It's not a focusing on, it's not an idolatry, it's not a pampering. It's kind of a reverence of subsidiaries that uh, open up your artistry. Mm-hmm. And so, so a, an actual attention to your embodiment actually can heal your epistemology. That's how it ought to be. Yeah. And I also think your relationship with Jesus Christ is the key to healthy epistemology. It just takes doing a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so you can see how that is. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is, this is getting me so excited about your course that you're going to be teaching at Regent College. Um, the name of the course that you're, that you're going to be teaching is called Loving to Know, a Workshop in Covenant Epistemology. So what do you, what do you mean? Let's talk about this idea of covenant epistemology. What, what, what is that and how, is, how does that relate to the other the sort of things we've been talking about? That's great. Thank you. So I told you, uh, so the idea of knowing that I have been describing that I got from Michael Polanyi is called subsidiary focal integration. Yes. And then I also told you that uh, what just uh, was so the water of life to me in what he would say is this idea of contact with reality. Mm. So mm-hmm. reality shows up and, uh, you know, overwhelms you with this sense of future possibilities. Yes. That's how you know you've made contact with reality. Mm-hmm. Well, the more I thought about that, the more it seemed to me that when you make contact with reality, it's not so much that it answers your questions as it explodes them. Yeah. <laughs> it starts mm-hmm. asking you the questions. Right. <laughs> and so then I started to think, you know, it's kind of like not just the knower is the a person, but maybe the yet to be known is person like too. So mm-hmm. there's a, a mutuality that remains surprising recognition. So that it's like there's hints of the interpersonal in the knower yet to be known relatedness. And then mm. it dawned on me, and I learned this from reading Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, mm. the idea of stalking muskrats she talks about, that she was describing covenant behavior when she said, if you want to see a muskrat, you've got to do it on the muskrat's terms, which means you've got to swallow your own dignity and you've got to sit very still. You cannot scratch your nose Mm -hmm. and you have to wait for a long time. And then if the muskrat shows up, you still count it as grace. (laughs) Right. Right. And so I thought, my golly, that's covenant behavior. And, and so that's where I got started to get to the idea of covenant. And then I was working with Mike Williams at the time at Covenant Seminary, who said, look, covenant is relationship. 
And I was like that, that just like put things, helped me put, move, you know, I kind of rode the covenantal toward the interperson likeness of the knower yet to be known relationship. So so covenant epistemology, I say augments Polanian epistemology in the direction of the interpersonal. And the way I would define covenant epistemology is to say, it's my proposal that the paradigm of good knowing is the interpersonal covenantally constituted relationship best typified in the Lord Jesus's redemptive encounter of me. Mm. Can you say that again? Yep. So the paradigm of good knowing is the interpersonal covenantally constituted Mm. relationship best tip typified in the redemptive encounter yeah thank you mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> i was like i was tracking with all the words and i was like now i just need you to say them again so that they kind of go back together in my brain yeah um, and then yeah. That, see that's how jesus and i grew up knowing that jesus was the answer to everything right mm-hmm. so that's how you center jesus in your epistemology in the mm-hmm. redemp it's it's the redemptive encounter that is that typifies the this kind of cut this relational it becomes the best paradigm. Uh-huh. Reality uh-huh. walks in and takes over. <laughs> That's how yeah. you know it's real, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> so p- part of the uh, covenantal epistemology piece is a thing you say that you have to love that which you want to know. And, and, and further than that, you have to enter into a covenantal loving relationship with that yep. you want to know because it, it's reality. You, you enter into a dedicated relationship to that and, and you equate it to marriage, right? Yep. You yep. don't know the person you, you marry once you enter into a covenantal relationship with that person. And then through that you know, commitment of years and years and years, you start to know, right? And that, that was... Of course, I was thinking about music and, and how, how you actually understand it. And it's a lifelong commitment you have with that which you love. And yeah. Then you yeah, so you're right. I mean, marriage, you promise to love, honor, and obey what you do not yet know and exactly. long enough. And then you better remember that it's a matter of grace that reality self-discloses. A matter of grace, it's, yeah. In other words, it's no guarantee just because you pledge to reality is no guarantee that reality will self-disclose because it's it's personed right right and so you can invite it you're pledging you're promising you're living life on the terms of the yet to be known invites reality uh-huh. but it doesn't commandeer it that is so interesting i did not understand and that that's before because no, it's real. No, yeah <laughs> yeah Well, another thing that we've lost in in modernity that I've thought more about in uh, the recent years is we've really lost regard for the other. Yeah. And and when I say the other at this point, I mean, the yet to be known. You know, we just Mm -hmm. the, the whole approach to knowledge as information collecting is voyeuristic. Yeah. <laughs> It's dominating mm-hmm. commodifying yeah. Yeah. Uh, dominating, and, yeah. and you and and it um you know it it doesn't the posture is not of reverent regard for the other 
Mm-hmm. Right. No, it's not. <laughs> I love what you used to the, the phrase dominating. Yeah. It's like it kind of blows my. Well, it's not very nasty. It's a kind of nasty. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. I mean, mm-hmm. it's true. It is true. And I, I think persons that are of of are, that are non-white feel it in a way that white Europeans don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And sort of going, you sort of, and you've sort of touched on this, but so saying that reality is then kind of person-like. We need to, we need to invite it. Do you want to talk? Because, because that means you've got to be. You person-like means you, it's got to disrupt you. Right, so the reality of that person and the reality of them is going to disrupt you because they're real and they're not going to do exactly mm. like it's not measurable. They're not going to do things the way. Is that is that what you mean? What do you talk to us about that? That it's got to be that reality is like is person like. We need to invite it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, that sounds really scary. Mm. <laughs> right. right, but but um, they're mystical. Uh, okay, we'll come back to mystical. Uh, <laughs> I, I I think maybe it's not so scary. Yeah. yeah. And and see, part of not only do we have a defective epistemological mindset, we've got a defective metaphysical one too. Mm. And we have sim- modernity has cut us off from the real, and our posture, if we have one toward reality, is distrust and skepticism, yep. and critique. And uh, we we have been learned we have been postured to expect reality to hurt us. Mm. Mm. So being open to reality does not sound fun. So, but what I would mm. like to say is, if you're a surfer, <laughs> not that I am, <laughs> uh, don't you throw yourself into the waves? Mm. <laughs> That's trusting yeah. reality. Right. That's a good image, yeah. So so uh, I think if we, again, come attend to what we are actually doing, we actually love, we love. We love the things that we, that we trust in order to understand. Mm. Mm. So, so I, I, uh, in more recent years, have thought a lot about reality and and the kind of the fundamental goodness of it. And I don't at all mean to de- deny, you know, the pervasiveness of sin or anything like that, but it's that sin isn't original, <laughs> but good mm-hmm. is. And I think you can get to this very easily from, you know, in our, our uh, you know, doctrinal commitments a la the authority of scripture to uh, the fact that the world is the let there be of God. Everywhere your eye lands, you've got covenant language that is bringing this molecule and this instant into existence. It's one big yes of God, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so, so, uh, and it's going on post Genesis three, <laughs> we get yeah. the cultural mandate reissued in Genesis nine, you know, yeah. so we're still called to, to the stewardship of this good word. This is the let there be of the Lord. This is the word yeah. of the Lord. Right. So there's an integrity and a goodness to creation. I can get at quite easily theologically, but it's again, it's another thing for us to learn and to acknowledge 
uh, the trust that we do have. Yeah. Uh, and and work that out in our in our mm. ontology mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Back to the mystical. You know, I was going to say. I was going to oh, say. Yeah, you, mystical, yeah. Let's yeah. go back to the mystical. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. But what? Yeah. Why? So you there was something about the word mystical that you were like. Mm, you know what? So what? Talk to us about Me? that. Yeah. yeah. I, it was two separate things. So. Okay. Okay. Well, here's what I what hit me about Polani as I was learning it was it's not uh, the subsidiary uh, inherently can't be, be put into words at the time that you're indwelling it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't make it mystical. So my sense of right. balance on a bike is not mystical. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's wordless. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So. I'm sure there's other wonderful things that mystical can mean. Um, but it was really helpful to me at the time when I, when I was trying, when I was writing longing to know and what that was, was me uh, trying to justify my own Christianity to myself, as well as uh, pick up the gauntlet that Leslie Newbegin had thrown down, you know, mm. I mean, and we can come back to that, but I, the ordinariness of the subsidiary, the non-mysticalness of it was was mm. appealing to me. Yeah. And also, on the other hand, the fact that it wasn't mistake-free either. I mean, mm. it, it, it wasn't intuitive. It wasn't incorrigible. The subsidiary is not incorrigible. This is not a foundationalism. It's not a non-foundationalism either. Mm. Yeah. That yeah. is interesting. When you say uh, it's not mistake-free, you mean you mean kind of reality is not uh, the, a mistake-free? Is that what you am I understanding? Sub- what do you mean? Your subsidiary, oh, subsidiary is not mistake-free. Got it. Got so it. Got for it. example, just our talking about the modernist mindset. Well, it's it's that's a subsidiary. That's a subsidiary that's mistaken. I see. Yeah, and that's why I have to do therapy. I can't just give textbook information. No. Because it's your bodied mindset, <laughs> mm. you know, your subsidiary. It's your subsidiary that needs healed. Now, there's lots of people yeah. that talk about the pre-theoretical, but they don't know Polanyi either. So it doesn't occur to them that this, this uh, you know, subsidiary area can actually be trained and healed and needs to be, and that's philosophy. Mm. I, really, I really am kind of... <laughs> A lone voice. <laughs> There's not too many of us. Yeah, no, we're well, talking this well, way. You've got two fans. You've got at least two fans now. If it, yeah, in case there's You're no others. Get a lot more. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I do have a question. Uh, like, we're getting close to, to the end of the podcast, but when you talk about epistemological therapy, uh, you, you talk about that's, that's philosophy. And w- w- what else is that? Like, how do I continue this uh, or what, what what do i do in order to engage with with this this sort of therapy and how does it work and can you give us examples or in order for us to understand well, what that i means? i'm so sorry to say this i'm i'm really uh self-conscious to say it but i don't know any way to carry out epistemological therapy short of having people read my books hmm mm, okay and mm. then walking with them through it mm-hmm. yeah. yeah now i i think once that happens like i said even football <laughs> ought to carry out epistemological therapy 
but mm. th- there needs to be some kind of wordage reassigned. And, and I don't know how to, I mean, in this class I'm teaching, you're going to read a thousand pages or so, you know, it's all, and it's all meek, but I don't mm. know how to do it in fewer words. Yeah. yeah. Now okay, we are having this conversation in a, in an hour. And I hope that's that, you know, I do think when I show up, you know, I can say things in a more brief way. It's easier to get somebody on a bicycle mentally. (laughs) But but then because the modernist mindset is so strident and so prevalent, it just it takes fighting uphill on this for a long time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I'm excited that at at Regent, I've got a week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a workshop, you know, and, and again, this is not about, I don't know, it's, it's not your usual idea of scholarship, but I think it's, it's what needs to happen. And it's what God, I feel, has called me to do. Yeah. And I got to drop Leslie Newbigin's name again, because you know who he is. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he was just a movement starter by saying when he came back to the, to the West as a missiologist, Mm-hmm. Something is stopping the ears of people in the West mm-hmm. so they don't even hear the gospel. Mm-hmm. And he said, mm-hmm. the problem is epistemology and Michael Polanyi's the answer. Mm. He said it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Okay. I didn't know that. You go and read what he is drinking deeply at the well of Michael Polanyi because they had a J.H. Oldham in common. I'm, and, you know, we think Oldham was the one that told Newbigin he needed to read Polanyi. So, mm-hmm. and you see, and, and there's another guy, David Kettle, who he may be Australian, but he, was, he was the successor to Leslie Newbigin. And right. he talks about the domestication of the church and of the gospel in the West. And he mm-hmm. does the same thing. He, he goes to Polanyi. And he says, this is the, re- the remediation we need in the modern West, just so the gospel can be heard, just mm, so mm. the church can be the church. I mean, it's a huge claim. So I was going to say, that is a yeah. massive claim. Yeah. 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 That one. <laughs> we won't pin that one on you, Esther. We won't pin that one on you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Esther, there's clearly there's something about this way of thinking about epistemology that brings life in you, right? There is just there's no doubt about it. Like talking to you, like you have like there's like exuding out of you. I don't know if that's your personality or if that's your understanding of epistemology or or, or some combination of the of the two. But what for you personally, in your own walk with Christ, in your own understanding of the church, this kind of as a thirteen year old, you're like, I don't know, I don't know whether I can believe God exists or whether I exist or whatever, how has this, and you've sort of alluded to this at different points, but how has this sort of way of thinking about epistemology, not even thinking about epistemology, but this, this epistemology, how has it, how has it um, grown your kind of confidence in Christ or your confidence in the scriptures, your confidence in kind of the transcendent? What, like how has it impacted you, Esther, and your own faith? I think it has i you know it's a hard to say how i am a very excitable person (laughs) (laughs) but i do you know in recent years i've just felt just caught up into the real and and you know so there's a some uh you know 
I, I, I don't know. Just I, I, I call my realism exuberant realism. Yeah, and and yeah. I just feel like mm. I'm launching myself out into the breakers of the ocean. And that's yeah. just like throwing myself into the color of, of the ocean. And and and, mm. it's, you know, it's like my my uh, all of all of this has just become my love of God. It's yeah. become my love of God. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, so so. Um, I don't know, whatever, yeah. I don't know, I'm over whatever happened when I was 13. No, no totally, yeah, 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 like it's just become dip, deeper and richer and fuller and more colourful and more beautiful and less, hu- yeah. and actually not that easy to explain, which actually proves what you're saying. You actually can't put it into sentences almost, but there's something in that knowing that's, that's, um, that's yeah, yeah, that, that makes. Yeah, it's sense. like I've never seen a happier and more excited philosopher in my life. <laughs> In well, my, I in do my like subverting the stereotype. <laughs> I love it. Well, um, Esther, it's been so lovely to speak with you and we, we are so looking forward to sort of having you at Regent over the summer and um, there'll be in the show notes, there'll probably be some, there'll be ways that you can sign up for, for Esther's class. But Esther, thank you for your time. Thanks for thinking so well about this and living into it and, and helping us understand it in a way that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for giving me the chance to talk to you and people beyond you. So that's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Thank you, Esther. It's, it's been such a blessing <laughs> drinking from your well. <laughs> it's been ther- like, I have to say it publicly. Thank you, Esther. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, God bless you guys. Yeah, thank you, Esther. Okay, well, we'll see you around. Thank you again for your time. We really appreciate it. Go in peace. Okay, yeah, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.